Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. So today we're talking to Dave Oza. He's a lawyer in Manhattan who specializes in healthcare, except for malpractice issues. He's a staunch clinician advocate, which is why we invited him to talk with us today. Let's have a listen. David Voza, I, I am so happy to have you on the podcast this week. We have talked in the past and had some great conversations, and we thought it would be super to share those conversations with our listeners. So thank you so much for agreeing to come and speak with us. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So could you just, could you give our listeners a bit of background on what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm an attorney. I, I uh, actually work in the healthcare department at a mid-sized firm in Manhattan. Um, I practice in many states, and uh, for the most part, I will represent individual physicians and small to mid-sized medical groups. Um, the bulk of my work is um, licensed b- uh, board work. I have uh, a lot of work also on behalf of doctors who have audits, either by Medicare or Medicaid or by uh, private insurance companies, um, hospital privilege actions, really anything that is not malpractice, I will handle on behalf of physicians. So things that could limit somebody's scope of work or limit their ability to get a job or create disciplinary action for them? Is that sort of a way of summarizing it up? Absolutely. You know, when I first started um, in this space, I, I, you know, medicine has such nobility attached to it, or the, 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 the profession does. And I came into it thinking that for the most part, I would be handling transactions. Okay, this doctor is going to be um, uh, acquiring a, a, another practice or, or you know, just positive things. But as it turns out, what I've found out about the profession is really, it's a struggle. It's a struggle if you want to think about it as a business, which it is. It's a struggle to make ends meet these days, especially for small groups and solos, God forbid. And uh, there are many different entities and agencies and patients which seemingly are attacking at every uh, corner. Um, so what it, what it turned out or what my career has turned out to be is really um, I'm half a psychologist and, and hand-holding with some of these physicians. I'm trying to get them through their career and all of these types of adverse events and actions that can occur. And then, of course, dealing with the legal aspect of it. So it's been fascinating for me. Um, I personally started uh, uh, when I went to undergrad. I was pre-med, and this was going to be my my uh, my career for myself. And then I quickly uh, figured out that you know the math portion of it or the calculus portion of it, to be more specific, wasn't wasn't really my thing. So I kind of made a transition, and I'm in the sort of the next uh, the next best world. And uh, the reason why I love doing what I do is I, I get to deal with physicians. I love the practice. Um, I, I love the way that doctors think. If you think about the analysis that they um, encounter or go through every day, think about a differential. They're looking at a symptomology or, or a, a set of, um, of disease process, and they, they decide based upon the differential what uh, test to run first based upon, uh, you know, need or, or uh, emergence. I think that's a great way to think about life in general. Most doctors, the world, overwhelming majority of doctors that I represent are just great people 
but it's difficult to run a practice nowadays. And so, um, unfortunately, uh, I, I quickly came to learn that it's really not all that it's cracked up to be. Um, and, I, and especially when I think people are in medical school uh, thinking about go, getting into the profession, it's probably thinking, I'm just going to save the world. I'm going to help everybody. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's, it's not the case. I bet that most doctors like me don't think too much about their relationship with the medical board. You know, we submit our, our documentation for privileges and hopefully it goes through and and that's the majority of our interaction until things go wrong or until there's a problem. Can you expand on some of the sort of stories, some of the anecdotes, some of the things that you see happening, particularly those things that are common and that people like me aren't thinking about? Yeah, of course. Um, there are really two sets of of dangers or pitfalls that I see physicians get themselves into when it, when when we're talking about uh, medical boards. We can either talk about the hospital setting, in which case there are a um, subset of issues that you're dealing with with privileges there, and also the the medical license board, which I believe you're you're asking about right now. But I I would like to touch on both. Yeah, please. A, a lot of physicians are not necessarily aware that there is this license board out there that um, has jurisdiction over your license and and has the ability to, and in most states has the obligation to pursue and investigate any complaints they receive. So if I want to use New York State, for example, they receive over 10,000 complaints a year. So you can imagine it's very, very common. Okay, And the reason why it's so prevalent is there's this push or encouragement in the general population in New York where for even the slightest misperception of what's going on in the clinical setting, they get to complain. And that coupled with the fact that the plaintiff's bar usually prior to or contemporaneous with filing a lawsuit will direct the patient to file a complaint with the license board. Now, most states are generally the same. The process is the same. You have you, you receive notice of a complaint. You don't know who who filed the complaint, although sometimes you can guess it right through whatever the initial notice says. And then you're 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 caused to have to defend yourself um, at a hearing or an interview regarding um conduct for which you probably had a great reason to have performed if it's clinical um, or it's sometimes you're, you're dealing with really benign issues. I've had probably hundreds of cases before the license boards. I can re recall one of them being um, a complaint by a uh, patient or a patient's mother, to be more specific, about how long they had to wait in, in the waiting room there. So um, if you look at the way that things are drawn up, Patients are incentivized to make complaints, um, and you can see it from the rating sites that doctors have. You know, they're, they're you're rated as if they're like a movie, you know, like a Netflix thing. So the whole system is set up towards punishing doctors for making decisions, and that's where you get defensive medicine. That's where you get doctors who are scared to uh, run a practice the way that they want to. And you know, the doctors are the, the professionals; they should have that leeway and that discretion. But they're sort of cut caught in a corner. And, and trained not to uh, and, and act offensively. And that's why I think another reason why I think a lot of doctors don't want to hang up a shingle anymore and they end up, um, you know, just falling under the protection of this large medical group or in a hospital setting. One of the interesting things that you said earlier was that you had no idea that all of this happened, that, that the practice of medicine could be so hard. And I wonder if the physicians that you end up defending have any better idea about all the 
could potentially happen in the context of a medical board? Yeah, I think for the most part, physicians don't. I've I've lectured a lot at different residency programs um, uh, in many, many different hospitals. And there's really there's really no education about the license board about what it even means to have a license um, and what discipline is. And and really what what is essential is that that education needs to happen. When you look at uh, the, the practice of medicine today, we, we all know the term burnout, right? Physicians are, are um, finding it harder and harder to practice. They have to deal with the license board. They have to deal with getting proper reimbursements. They have to deal with insurance companies seeking to take money back that they've already paid them you know, years in advance. So there's all these things that come into play and, and there is no education and there needs to be. And that's something that I've sort of preached and I feel like um, in my affiliations with different medical societies, um, when they try to come up with different platforms um, every year, I, I, I try to make it a point to say you got to teach the younger docs and even get into the medical schools to teach them what the practice is really like, what it really means to um, be reimbursed and what it means to have to deal with a complaint. And I think that a lot of people or a lot of physicians, if they had that, that education, would probably, probably practice a lot differently than they do now. Okay, I'll give you a, a particular example of uh, of, a, of a doctor who was um, in the upstate New York region, and he was very well known for treating MS. And I, I hate to, uh, you know, I, I might butcher some of the clinical uh, terminology <laughs> here, but okay. um, you know, I'll, I'll do my best here. This particular doctor was known, like I said, throughout the world for being able to treat MS a certain way. And patients from all over the world went to see him for for his treatments. And he employed over 30 people. There was an infusion center in its practice. By all means, this was a thriving and you know great practice. Um, but of course, uh, like so often happens, when you set up a system or have a system in place where it's so easy to submit complaints to the license board, not only do patients take advantage of that, but competitors do, unfortunately. So in this instance, a competitor had levied a complaint. Of course, we guessed it because you're not allowed to know who the complainant is, which is another drawback. But we um, surmised that a competitor filed a complaint just basically and very generally saying that his methodology of treating MS was dangerous to patients, okay? Now, when the Board of Health came in, um, the Board of Health has the ability to, and this, this is not just in New York, this is for essentially all states have a, a, similar, a, a similar setup. They are allowed to summarily suspend a doctor in lieu of an investigation. Now, it's exceedingly rare, and they have to really show to a court Okay, that there is uh, an imminent danger to patients for them to shut down a practice like that, um, pending an investigation. In this case, the Department of Health um, successfully suspended his practice in lieu of the investigation, and it was voluntary. This particular doctor hired a lawyer, not a healthcare lawyer. Okay, when he first received the notice, uh, you know, like like I always tell people, don't just hire, you know, your uncle who does real estate. And when, when it comes to when it comes to healthcare, you need to have healthcare counsel in place. And that healthcare counsel entered into a voluntary agreement, agreeing to suspend or uh, shut down the practice during the uh, investigation. Huge mistake. Again, that should never have happened. And it's one of those items or one of those points of education that I think um, would have served the doctor well if he had known not to do that. But um, so 
the way that this particular doctor treated MS was just a lot more aggressive than what was traditionally the first line treatment. Okay, and um, uh, the the uh, complaint against him was that was causing damage or a dangerous um, uh, situation for these patients because that may lead to this. Um, this disease process called PML. And again, the physicians uh, that are I'm speaking to you right now will know exactly what PML is. <laughs> but uh, I, re I recall from the case that PML, there's a one in 1,000 chance of getting it from the particular um, uh, treatments that he was providing patients. But if you do get it, it's pretty dangerous. Now, you can actually die from that, right? So um, we were able to demonstrate to the board that these patients, first of all, voluntarily chose to go through this aggressive treatment, okay? Um, and it was not like it was unheard of. It was actually likely the secondary or tertiary treatment that you would get after the first line. This particular doctor just did not want to start with the first line because there's many different adverse events that happen when you have MS. And he felt like uh, if, you, if, if patients wanted to move past it, they had the right to do that. We we had a, a multiple interviews. We had multiple submissions and and uh, you know written submissions, trying to advocate for this doctor. And ultimately, after over a year of his practice shut down because of this investigation, we received a one paragraph letter saying thank you. The case is closed. But by the time it was over, that doctor couldn't open his practice up. He had to lay off all of his transfusion um, staff, and essentially the practice was um, closed down. So not only did those people lose their jobs, I think much more importantly was the patients. The patients who were uh, gravitating towards him um, were not going to be able to treat with him anymore simply because this competitor used this really leveraged system that's set up um, where you have the stack sort of uh, the decks sort of stacked against you um, to, to their advantage. Unfortunately, that doctor is not even practicing today because of that. Wow. So, David, you mentioned sort of the uh, distinction between the board and a medical malpractice lawsuit. And in, in many ways, the medical board can have even worse consequences uh, from what you're saying than, than a, a lawsuit. You also mentioned uh, the work that you do in the area of hospital privileges can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. And, and I do agree with you, by the way. Um, most doctors now have pretty substantial insurance, which will cover them from malpractice. And so I'm not saying malpractice is not important and not something you right. want to avoid. But um, essentially, uh, you know, your license board actions can result in suspensions and revocations and any sort of discipline, which then has a cascading effect. Because once that is reportable to the National Practitioner Data Bank, then insurance companies and other hospitals come into play and becomes a, a big mess. Um, right. By the way, all physicians need to be aware that a sm for a small fee, they can get an endorsement on their malpractice insurance, which will pay their legal fees for license board actions. So I'm talking $500 a year or $500 per uh, policy period. It's such a, a minuscule amount comparative to what your regular premiums are that it's really foolish not to get it. And that serves as a, a lot of protection um, in, in the event that you have a license board, um, uh, you know, investigation or, or action against you. That's a great thing to know. Yeah. When I see doctors in hospital settings, um, I, I, I always sort of cringe a little bit when I have a, a doctor come to me and they say to me, well, I'm under investigation, so I, I went ahead and I just quit, right? 
or I resigned myself. Um, or when, when a doctor comes to me and tells me that they've been terminated and they didn't do anything about it. These are, these are emergencies, okay? When a doctor's in a hospital setting and they're being investigated for anything, the rule is if you resign while you're under investigation, then that's a reportable event of a data bank. So a lot of doctors don't know that. They think, well, you know, let me get out of this situation. It's not a good situation for me. I don't really need it. But as it turns out, that resignation in and of itself will be a reportable event um, and a termination as well. Um, and when I see... When I see individuals or, or physicians who are tripped up um, and get before um, hospital boards, it's usually the most passionate physicians, physicians who care most about patient care. And when they observe uh, deficient patient care or deficient um, or you know billing improprieties in a hospital setting, they just don't keep their mouth shut. They're known as the as what what the hospital administration will label them as disruptive physician. You know, the hospital administration will generally use that term in a derogatory way. Like you're not playing well in the sandbox. Don't give us a problem. We're all in this together. That that kind of thing. But some doctors are just not able to to deal with that. You know, they they, they see that. Um, I mean, I had a doctor very recently who was terminated from the hospital, but he directly observed physicians who were uh, documenting particular patient encounters when they hadn't really ever, ever seen the patient, okay? So it's, it's all great to say to a physician, well, just look away, you know, it's not, it's not for you to, 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 to bring that up. But this particular doctor raised, a, you know, raised a stink about it. And so it became a, a huge issue. The, the rule is that when you become, when you, when you fall under the radar, of an administration in a hospital setting and they want to get you out, they will do it. Okay. And so it becomes incumbent upon the physician at that point to know how to work your bylaws, read your bylaws, know exactly what they say, know exactly what the appeals process is and what the uh, peer review process is in that hospital. Uh, so you don't get to that situation where you get to a reportable event. And so I encourage all physicians, obviously, if there's even the inkling of, of an issue in a hospital setting to consult with experts, um, you know, because you don't want to resign in that in that scenario and uh, end up getting yourself into a reportable event that way. Even when there's no complaint against them, but there feels like there's maybe tension at the hospital or there's a little more conflict than they thought. At what point should somebody reach out to an employment lawyer or to a medical board defense lawyer to say, you know, something does not feel quite right in my job. What should I do? Yeah. So I, I actually, uh, I, I, I try to stay in constant contact with my clients. Okay. And I tell them when, when you feel like something's off and I don't really know how to properly define that, you just feel it. I think just, most people have an intuition that something is wrong. Then, then they need to start. I, I consider that a, a red alarm emergency here. Now, the sirens should be going off because if you hope for the best and hope it goes away, then you, you there's a likely there's a chance that you might get into a situation where you'll be terminated or have your privileges restricted in some way, which is a reportable event. So I always um, if there's a if it's a clinical issue and you're called before the chief, you know, let's say of your department and your chief reads you the riot act, you know, that's going to happen every once in a while. Um, but if it's sort of a, a, a pattern and it becomes uh, you know, systemic sort of where you're constantly being called in or you might actually be put on some sort of focused practice review, then that's a pretty good indication that there's something going on. You might want to get the get your, your ducks in a row and get prepared for that. That's great advice. 
what are the other big kind of tips and tricks that you think physicians should absolutely know but aren't commonly aware of? Um, most physicians are in a specialty, right? It doesn't matter if it's IM or if it's, uh, you know, a gastro or cardio. You have certain codes and, you know, billing codes that are associated with the services and the um, tests and, and procedures that you perform. Know those codes. I don't, I mean, I really don't think it's an, there's an excuse not to know what the codes are and how to properly bill. Even if you have a billing person in your office or you work in a hospital setting, those bills are going out with your name on it, okay? Um, so we don't want a scenario where you end up getting a retrospective audit based upon your your billing um, because you weren't keeping track of that. So I, I believe that it's essential to utilize experts. Uh, it's a business like any other. And one expert that every physician should be utilizing is a coding expert. I mean, it costs probably... You know, I probably shouldn't directly quote it, but, you know, $1,000 a year to get a self-audit done where they will take a, a coding expert will take a look at your a sample of your records to determine whether or not you're coding correctly. And that saves you a huge amount of money in the long run. I mean, I have doctors who have, uh, you know, over million dollar audits um, because these audits don't come in until years uh, of billing and you might be billing incorrectly for years. OK. Um, and and I, I think also another thing that doctors need to do is also just follow their intuition. I mean, there's there's a lot of fear going on, unfortunately. But for the most part, uh, I, I think that if, if you just follow what you think is is intuitively the right thing to do, you're going to you're going to be OK in the end. I actually have a, another example of, of how a p particular young doctors um, not following his own tuition um, actually cost him uh, a license matter was, um, a, a, again, a young doctor, uh, once again, in the hospital setting, he, this, this happened to, this person happened to be a psychiatrist and, um, he had seen a patient who was well known in the hospital for, for making sort of vague suicidal attempts. Um, and in this, this one particular, um, occasion, the patient came in and, and indicated that he had, um, taken, um, a bunch of Tylenol or, or some sort of, but what you would consider maybe a benign medication, although I'm sure it's still dangerous. Um, this doctor was, uh, on call, but then called the attending who was at home and said, you know, this is so-and-so patient. John Doke came in, he, uh, tried to, um, overdose on Tylenol. And I want to keep him in. I want to. I want to test him, and I think you should come in uh, to to you know to see him. And of course, the attending, being the much older doc who knows everything, you know, said, "There's no way. I know this John Doe. He, he does this all the time. Don't even, don't even sweat it. You know, you can go ahead and discharge." And speaking to this doctor now, um, or after the fact, he told me his, a voice in his head was telling him, "Do not let this guy go." I mean, you could probably guess the end of the story. You discharged the patient, and the patient went straight to uh, home and, and actually followed through and, and ended up taking his own life. That particular um, doctor was disciplined for that because he didn't hold to his, what his intuition was. And, of course, that attending, nothing happened to him. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not looking to um, you know, badmouth any particular doctors. That was a tough situation for that, for that doctor to be in. Right. But um, it's just a, a very tragic situation. And uh, again, I think if he just held to was what his intuition told him to do um, and his training told him to do, he would have been much better off. So, David, you know, one of the things that um, is at least topical for me is that the last week I watched this absolutely horrifying TV documentary on on Dr. Death or the, the spine physician who had obviously gotten away with some 
absolutely horrific things. And it was totally mind-blowing as a surgeon to watch that and see what had happened and how far someone had got before boards got involved and hospital credentialing got involved and all those kind of things. And I'm sure there was a little bit of um, dramatic <laughs> leeway in the way the story was told. But obviously, we're not condoning any kind of malpractice here. And, you know, we're not trying to tell people how to get away with things that they shouldn't be doing. But I'm I'm curious how common you see these events in comparison to malpractice events. Is this something that most physicians will at some stage at least be exposed to? How often do you see these kind of problems occurring? Yeah, I think the Department of Health uh, or board license board complaints are much more common than you may think. I, I would I would guess that most physicians will know another physician at least who has had gone through the process. Uh, you know, people don't go around telling everybody, oh, I got a license board action against me. I mean, it's not something you want to share. And for the most part, most most states have the system set up where at least the initial part of it will be confidential. So you don't necessarily have to disclose it. OK. And if you play your cards right and, and your attorney knows what they're doing in that particular setting at the beginning, in the confidential non-disciplinary stage. If you get the case closed there, which it should be, um, um, then you'll never have to disclose it to anybody. You know, like I said before, in New York, there were there's 10,000 complaints a year. So you have to imagine there's, there's a, that's a lot of complaints. But for the overwhelming majority of them will be closed out. The doctor's death, the, 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 the scenarios where you have doctors who are really egregious in their misconduct are extremely far and few between, like exceedingly exceedingly rare. I mean, right. uh, when, when you see discipline handed down now, it's it's usually because there's a pattern of a particular behavior. For example, on a wrong side surgery, you can have a wrong side surgery. You can have a one time wrong side surgery and that won't be disciplinary. OK, because mistakes happen. Right? I mean, doctors are human. OK, but if you have multiple, that's going to be a pattern. And so you generally will have a discipline that's um, associated with that. I can remember about 10 years ago when, you know, I mean, we know the opioid epidemic, you know, like the back of our hands now. Everybody knows about it. It's it's uh, in, in the news all the time. But you know, 10 years ago, it was not really talked about that much. And I remember a case that I had uh, of a really busy family doctor in um, in Long Island who, uh, you know, and he was really, you know, a much older um, gentleman. He he didn't realize that patients were traveling from hundreds of miles away to his practice because they all figured out or somehow figured out that he was lax in his prescribing habits uh, for opioids. Okay. Now that particular doctor was, he received a slap on the wrist for what today would bring you an automatic license revocation. I mean, the, the trend now was finally to go after the manufacturers and the marketers of these medications. But for a long time, Doctors were even being criminally charged for their prescription habits. You know, I, you know, obviously, I, I think that was a big overstep. Um, but to, to answer your question, I, I, I think that the the egregious uh, types of cases where doctors actually do, you know, the horrible stuff that that I think that becomes sensationalist, like in the documentary or on uh, on the news, are very 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 few and far between. That's not to say that doctors should just, you know, ignore the fact that this is possible. Um, yeah. again, you know, there's, there, these are certainly preventable. And for the most part, if you document correctly and, um, you lean on your experts, uh, this is uh, something that you could probably go your whole career without ever having to worry about, but it's certainly yeah. something we have to be aware of. David, 
as I listen to you and as a, as a practicing surgeon, I got to say that if you really want to frighten a doctor, don't give them a difficult case. Um, tell them the lawyer's on the phone. Um, I mean, I think that's exactly. to most of us, that's far more scary than a sick patient. Um, and so as a result, I'm sitting here writing down things. And so the advice you've given us bullet pointed here that I've taken down, and number one, if you get into trouble, call a healthcare lawyer, not just any lawyer. Number two, um, if you are buying your own health in, or medical malpractice insurance, the endorsement to cover board action is very worthwhile. Number sure. three, don't re resign when you're under investigation because that becomes a reportable event and obviously you want to get your lawyer involved. Number four, you said that knowing your hospital bylaws, including the appeals process and peer review process is incredibly important. And then we talked about building codes and understanding them and knowing how they're used properly um, and getting professionals involved when necessary. What are the things I've missed? What are the other things that you would give as advice to physicians out there who just aren't familiar with this stuff? Yeah, I, I mean, those are the those are the the really most prevalent issues that that physicians um, come across. But I, again, I, I really would stress that um, I, you know doctors, for the most part, overwhelming majority of doctors have good intentions. Okay, nobody teaches physicians how to run a practice as a business or how to avoid the hyper regulated space that you're in, um, and and how to get how to stay off um, uh, you know agencies' radars. So I would urge all physicians to uh, keep up to date with what the regulations are. And you can do that by signing up for uh, healthcare blogs or, or with, uh, you know, the uh, OIG or OMIG website alerts, you know, advisory opinions. That, that's, that should be part of your practice, you know, sort of educating yourself as to what the regulations are. Same thing with, uh, you know, uh, CMEs as well. But for the most part, uh, I think, I think having the experts in place is most important. I'm not trying to make this like a pitch for healthcare attorneys. I just, I just think that it, it is important. Uh, I, I have a system set up that if, if, if you call me, if any physician calls me, I don't, I don't have to know where you're from or how you even got my number. I will spend a lot of time with you to, to try to, to navigate through whatever you're dealing with. And if, if it turns out to be an issue that we have to work together uh, more, um, then we'll do that. But I'm happy to have conversations um, because. Again, I started off my career, or at least my undergrad, if, that's, if you can call that part of your career, as wanting to be part of this space. I have a lot of respect for the profession. I, I generally think that um, there's too much regulation in many industries anyway. And so in order for us to uh, ensure that physicians can run practices in an efficient way, um, uh, they, they, have to be, they have to be helped and assisted by, by uh, the experts that are that are there to do that. And that's all, that's the best thing for patients, right? I mean, optimal patient care is gonna come along with it, um, a doctor who's not worrying about all these things in the background. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that's what I would stress and, uh, uh, you know, keep up with what the regulations are, know what they are. Um, so you're not gonna be surprised by, um, you know, what different types of, of uh, issues that might come across your desk um, and lean on the experts that you can. And that brings us right back to moral injury because although we haven't even said it during this entire podcast, the idea that we want our physicians to be able to take care of patients the way that they know is best often requires that help from a professional so that these other things aren't getting in the way of them doing what they know is the best thing for the patient. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I think is really important that you haven't said explicitly, but everything you've said is in that same direction, which is 
physicians are kind of brought up to be wary of lawyers, like Simon said. And I think it's a big shift for us to think that there are actually plenty of lawyers out there who are on our side. And so you don't always have to be defensive with a lawyer. You, you can actually have someone who helps you understand how to get through these wickets. Yeah, I agree. And I can tell you that when I first first started out um, and, and dealing with doctors, I, I definitely sensed that there was a sense that well, first of all, doctors are smart, right? So they're generally going to be the smartest person in the room, uh, and and they don't really want to generally listen to people um, or experts. And, and and I don't know, I necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think that um, you know, for the most part, that's just part of the of the personality. But that's why I think it's important for for uh, attorneys as well to understand. You know, put yourself in, in in these people's shoes a little bit here. They're they're not necessarily going to understand or or trust you. And building that trust, I think, is half the battle. Um, and I I enjoy it. I, I'm fascinated every time I get a phone call or uh, a client telling me what they're going through. It's a so it's a new sort of journey for me. And and um, I, I try my best to make it so that they are comfortable. And that's what any client deserves, not just a, a physician. So, but yes, I think. Um, for the most part, uh, you know, it's okay to be skeptical a little bit, but uh, you have to you have to rely uh, on on experts, and and hopefully, uh, I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'll protect my uh, my brethren here. Hopefully, most attorneys will understand that and uh, and will be helpful in that in that regard. David, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you uh, for all your advice, and um, I hope that I don't need to see you professionally in the future, but I know that um, <laughs> many of my my uh, colleagues and people listening to this will appreciate um, the voice of reason that you've given us here and the very sage advice. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. That's great. Thank you. Well, Wendy, I found that discussion with David just so interesting because, as I mentioned there, most of us get very anxious when we hear from lawyers or hear about lawyers. It's not <laughs> usually the favorite topic of most clinicians, but David's kind of the opposite. David is a lawyer who's here to help us. He's here to look at complaints related to the Board of Registration, to look at work conflicts and credentialing and licensing issues. And so he's the kind of person who can really help you out of a difficult bind. What I love the most is that he was pre-med. Mm -hmm. So he really has, you know, there's part of him that has empathy with physicians and with clinicians in general. So I thought that was really interesting. You know, it's interesting listening to him in that we often think of ourselves as practicing medicine in a vacuum. But, you know, part of this moral injury discussion and, and certainly part of the discussion with David is that there's a society around us and there's a competitive world of people who may be out to get you. Yeah. And there's a legal system which is designed to protect our patients, but sometimes it can backfire and it can hurt you in the process. And so I think it's this idea that, that we're practicing medicine in a much larger context, which he sort of highlights for us. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I worry that patients don't understand the impact on them yeah. as much as we would hope. This system is definitely designed to keep them safe. But at the same time, it has downstream effects that we don't anticipate. Sure. Things like the way we practice defensive medicine or that because of the risks that are involved in practice, fewer physicians are willing to go out into private practice and have that kind of small town family practice that all of us kind of think of as maybe the ideal where your doctor really knows you. Mm -hmm. 
So to bring this back to moral injury, which is right. what our podcast is primarily about, <laughs> um, you, you know, as I'm listening to this, you could be mistaken for thinking that this was a way to help you from getting into trouble with legal issues, right? But I think that one of the reasons we wanted to bring David in was because it's very important to think of these legal things as things that can get in the way of you being able to take the best care of patients that you know how. And so being mindful of some of these things that he spoke about is important for you to be able to practice in the way that you want to practice or that you should be practicing. Right. And I think it's just a good reminder that there are people who are expert in other things mm -hmm. that it would really do us well to at least consult with on a periodic basis to say, hey, let me just check in with you. Here's what I'm yeah. thinking, but I don't understand law the way you understand law, having done it for 15 years or 20 years. Yeah. You know, you and I have spoken to more than a handful of doctors who have had problems from speaking up or yeah. from doing things that they thought were the right thing to do. And so, um, you know, recognizing that, I think, is uh, that there are people out there that can help you like David and recognizing the uh, legal channels for protection, I think, are really important. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And you know, the, the thing that I was taking away from it were all those little tips and tricks that he was just rolling right off the tip of his tongue. And I just thought, oh, hang on, hang on, wait, 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 I need this written down. I need to, you know, I need this presented in a really clear way. So I thought one of the most interesting things he said that I would never have thought of was get the rider on your malpractice insurance. Yeah. Right? Um so that was clearly number one, right? <laughs> yeah. Cheap rider to help you with these kind of legal issues if you need mm -hmm. it. Number two, knowing your hospital and knowing the bylaws, the appeals process and the peer review process, understanding that there's actually a process. And if you don't know that process, that you can get help figuring that out. Yeah, for sure. And understanding, you know, it, it's almost this, this bigger picture of understanding the business side of medicine. So understanding the rules that apply to you, but mm -hmm. then also understanding the details about billing, right? So what are your specialty codes? How do you bill specifically in your specialty? How do you do that properly? Mm -hmm. Because you don't want the retrospective audit and you know you can go out and get somebody to self-audit you mm -hmm. for a relatively low cost periodically, once a year, twice a year. You know, it's interesting when you think about these things because one of the reasons I think we put those all behind us and forget about these things somewhat perhaps intentionally is because we say to ourselves, well, I'm doing the right thing for the patient. Yeah. And it's important to recognize that you're doing the right thing for the patient in an overall bigger context and that understanding the circumstances and the things around you is very important because otherwise it may come back to bite you. And that's why you've got to stick with experts when it comes to this stuff. If something's wrong or feels wrong or you have that gut instinct, as, as, as David said, consult with a lawyer. Hopefully that's somebody who can help you and, and frankly make sure it's an expert lawyer in this stuff, as he said, not your real estate lawyer. <laughs> right, right. The healthcare lawyer. I mean, I think that's the that's the interesting thing about all this is that we tend to trust our intuition with healthcare things because we've trained so long in it. And we forget that our intuition is great, but things in the law don't always follow the rules that we think maybe they should. Right. Well, that brings us to a nice close, Wendy. <laughs> 
As always, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios with logistics and coordination support from Kenzie Burkhart and Nikki Kraus. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. If you'd like to support future episodes of the podcast or any of the work we do, you can make a donation while you're there. Our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes so you can continue the conversation and you can help spread the word by sharing our episodes with friends and colleagues. Plus, if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. And as always, thanks for listening. And stay well.